Hey Brian, welcome to the fifth episode of The Goods, our film podcast. Hey Dan, it feels like a milestone. I know we've got an official feed up a couple places now, thanks to your hard work. Yeah, you can find us on Spotify, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, and we're on Podbean. We're getting more and more real. We are recording separate audio tracks this time to hopefully alleviate some previous issues. Definitely. And we might be hopping on social media if we can carve out some time for it. We're both busy people, so we'll see if we actually get around to that. So, I asked you to watch the 1995 film The American President, directed by Rob Reiner and written by Aaron Sorkin. Did you get a chance to watch it? I did. Watched it last night. Cool. I'm excited to talk about it with you. The film stars Michael Douglas as President Andrew Shepard and Annette Benning as Sidney Allen Wade, who's an environmental lobbyist for a fictional lobby called the GDC. And then we have a pretty full ensemble that's mostly the president's staff, including Martin Sheen as A.J. McInerney, who's the chief of staff. Michael J. Fox as a domestic policy guru, and Richard Dreyfus as the villain, Senator Bob Rumson. But there were plenty of other, uh, those are just kind of the big names. There were plenty of other uh, cast members as well. It's a big ensemble. Yes, a strong performance from the group as a whole. A lot of people who really shine. I was surprised. Martin Sheen is actually in this film in a prominent role. So that just increases my confusion. Yeah. You noted last time that uh, that Michael Douglas and Martin Sheen you get them mixed up, and you're not the only one. I read a couple of reviews, and that actually came up multiple times as a complaint from critics. Apparently, uh, Siskel, uh, in his review, he complained, that was his chief complaint about the film, is that he had trouble telling those two apart as the movie was going on. Yeah, you'd think seeing them multiple times in the same room would help with that, but it didn't really. Well, I asked you to watch this film because of the time that our country's facing right now. Listeners, as we record this, the 2020 election is less than a month away. It's the most partisan political environment, perhaps since the Civil War. A deadly virus is blazing through the White House that refuses to take basic precautionary measures to stop its spread. Our infected and addled president, perhaps high on steroids, has been sending contradictory and semi-coherent rage tweets in the middle of the night. But fear not, because we have another old white man, our knight in wrinkled armor, campaigning to be the new commander-in-chief on the clear platform of I Ain't Trump. I confess that I am a bit jaded about the current political landscape, which is why I wanted to uh, bring Brian and go take a trip back to the idyllic Sorkin-penned vision of the president, who's a charming but human policy wonk, and his staff is a model of expertise and efficiency and competence with no clown or circus in sight. And if you couldn't tell, our dialogue might be a little bit more scripted than normal, (laughs) as is befitting of a Sorkin-written film. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just needed to step on the soapbox. It might happen a couple more times throughout this podcast, but it's a politically charged time. But I will step off of that soapbox for a bit uh, regarding our current American president to discuss the American president, the charming 1995 romantic comedy slash political drama. So let's hop into it. 
we talked about how loaded the cast is, but in my opinion, the real star in the sense of being center stage is Sorkin's script. It's a it's a classic Sorkin script. He's kind of his own brand in Hollywood now. At this point, he, he was really just establishing his brand. This was his third film. He's a really interesting guy. I don't know how many Sorkin films you've seen, Brian. A couple. I've seen A Few Good Men, Social Network, possibly a couple others that I was not aware of. I know that Grant, a longtime Earn This writer, is a big Sorkin fan. And I really only started learning about him through that series of articles that Grant wrote and found that I had seen a number of his films. Yeah, he's had a really prolific career. He also is a very prominent television writer. By far his most famous work is The West Wing, which we're going to be talking a lot about in this podcast for reasons that will be obvious. Oh, yeah. And he's also, he wrote the sitcom Sports Night, and he's done a few others, but um, he's got a really interesting background. In the 80s, he was a, a bartender and a struggling entertainer. In fact, one of his main jobs was a for-hire singing telegram, and he always wanted to be kind of a playwright. Uh, he loved stage drama. That was like his passion. He borrowed uh, a friend's typewriter, and he wrote his first play sent it to his college professor, managed to get it staged at his alma mater, wrote another play, got it staged in another small venue, and then he, he landed an agent. And this agent tried to convince him that, his, that the real money, the career, was going to be in TV and movies. And again, this was not really what his passion was. He really wanted to like write the great New York Broadway hits. And his third script, which he was hoping to make into a play, is a courtroom drama. His agent made a deal where he would get to sell it, a screenplay version of it. So Sorkin bought a book on screenwriting craft, rewrote his stage play into a movie script, and his agent pitched it to Hollywood, and then also agreed to pitch the play version of it to various theaters. And it both got sold in Hollywood and on Broadway, and it became... A Few Good Men, which was his first major breakout moment. Uh, definitely a classic. Gives you the you-can't-handle-the-truth line with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. Yeah, I certainly enjoy that one. I'm a sucker for a good courtroom drama. You know, I can't honestly remember if I've seen that movie start to end, but it's one of those ones where if it's ever on TV, my dad would just leave it on. So I've seen the ending of that movie maybe 15 times, but I don't know if I've ever seen the opening half hour. Well, that, that blow-up from Jack Nicholson is definitely the most referenced moment. Yeah. Sorkin, uh, during all this, was developing a really distinct signature style. Very quippy, extremely smart and literate, very rapid-fire with lots of ebbing and flowing of emotions as it kind of goes through that, that really quick dialogue. And it's, it's structured around a lot of meetings. He's famous for the walk-and-talk, which is a meeting in a hallway as they're walking from one point to another point uh, with less depiction of the thing itself. It's more about like talking about the things, which is it's kind of very interesting. Yes, it's very dense. A lot is said. Sometimes you hear show don't tell. Here, things are artfully told. Yes, it's all about the tell. Very little show. But the characters, the things they say are, are memorable. 
everybody kind of seems to be flexing their intellect, which seems to be common of Sorkin script. It's fun to spend time with smart people. I like hearing smart people talk. And when you watch a Sorkin script, it just feels like you're watching smart people talk. Yes, these people seem effective in their roles. This is a non-Trumpian presentation of political dialogue. So after the success of A Few Good Men, he co-wrote a another movie called Malice. I've never seen Malice. I don't know very much about it. But he ended up getting pulled off of that so that he could finish A Few Good Men and begin writing his third movie, which became this, The American President. The way that he walked into this opportunity to write this movie was the legendary actor and producer Robert Redford wanted to produce and star in a movie that had just the one sentence logline of the president elopes and Sorkin wrote a treatment of it. Redford bought it, uh, hired Sorkin. Uh, immediately they started hunting for a director, Robert Reiner, who also directed a few good men and had a, has a really good relationship with Sorkin was hired, but apparently Redford and Reiner have been like longtime feuders have never gotten along. So Redford immediately dropped out, kept his name only as a producing credit but was basically not involved with the project anymore. Uh, Sorkin got to work on the script as the the cast was assembled. And one funny thing about this time period is Sorkin has kind of famously uh, chemically enhanced his performance on writing. He's always been known to be like a drug addict. And he has said in later interviews, yeah, I was smoking crack every single day I was writing The American President. Wow. So not just cocaine, he was actually smoking crack. Yeah, he, he was smoking crack, which uh, there is a certain intensity to the dialogue. I, I'll give him that. but Yeah, I will say that I, I watched this late at night last night, and I drank a lot of coffee beforehand, and it seemed to add to the experience, the energy. I was feeling the, the high-frequency vibe. So then this movie was produced, released, and it was a big hit. It did well, got good reviews. We're going to talk a little bit more about the film itself in a bit, but I think there's kind of one other theme that should be noted before we actually dig into it, because I think it is like the crowning legacy of this film, which is that this movie is basically a prototype for what would go on to be Sorkin's signature project, The West Wing. I'm, I haven't actually seen The, the West Wing, the, the entire series. I've seen several episodes and I think you said you have watched the whole show, right, Brian? Yeah, in 2016, in the lead-up to our last presidential election, I did binge pretty much the whole show. I think I still have part of the last season to go. I can certainly see the parallels. Yeah, I think suffice it to say, there is a lot from this premise, the script, that carried over to the West Wing. And I think it goes beyond just a handful of similarities West Wing is almost the American president, the show. Certainly, it's good to see a film which gives birth to a TV show that is actually superior to the film, I would say. I mean, we'll make our value judgments in a little while. But there are a lot of shows that inspire TV shows which are pale imitations. You know, this is not Harry and the Hendersons, the series, or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the series. The West Wing uh, improved on the formula. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that this was basically just uh, almost a pilot for the West Wing. I mean, not exactly, but it, 
it gave some of the ideas and then let the West Wing really run with it. Right. For those who have seen the West Wing, the ensemble dynamic is very similar. There's a lot of roles that kind of fill the same slots in the drama and the dialogue. You've got a charismatic young speechwriter who gets a lot of focus. In the movie, it's Michael J. Fox. On the TV show, it's Rob Lowe. You've got a chief of staff who's a longtime personal friend of the president and gets a lot of extended one-on-one dialogue scenes with him. In the movie, it's Martin Sheen. And in the TV show, it's a character named Leo. Then you've got a bald guy who gets quips in every once in a while, just funny, funny one-liners. And his name is Leo in the movie, and in the TV show, it's Toby. Then also in both, you've got a female press secretary, which is a much larger role in West Wing. She's kind of downplayed in American President. You get the sense that these roles were kind of key in Sorkin's mind, and he wanted to develop them further in the series follow-up. You also get Martin Sheen in both of them, but in different roles. Yes, you do. He got a promotion uh, to president in West Wing, which is kind of funny because near the end of American President, he gets a confrontational dialogue scene with Michael Douglas, and Michael Douglas says, Why did you never run for office, Leo? (laughs) No, sorry. Leo is his name in West Wing. Um, it's AJ. And I guess a couple of years later, I don't think it's supposed to be the same universe, of course. But but he took his advice. Yes. Yeah. The West Wing is, is a really uh, a great show. I haven't seen all of it, but it's kind of one of the last definitive network dramas before things really changed and started shifting towards streaming slowly and uh, dramas kind of lost some of their luster. It's maybe the last great pre-9-11 political mindset show. It's, it's kind of very idealistic, kind of inspiring about politics, I guess, in a way that it's kind of hard to be these days. I mean, certainly post-2016, but I would say that it goes back even further. Yeah, it is kind of weird to watch it in the wake of 9-11. A lot of people call the White House in this movie, and I wonder how easy that actually is to do. I mean, I, I'm sure there's like some somebody there to take your call, but I I don't know how easy it would be to just interact as much with the president as is shown in this film. So the West Wing connection is obvious, and I, I'm sure it'll come up again, but I've also had this theory about this movie, which I should say I've seen one time prior to this. I saw back around 2011, 2012, and I asked, again, on a recommendation from Grant, as you mentioned... Uh, one of our fellow writers for the, the pop culture website we occasionally write for. Ever since then, I've had this theory about how this movie is maybe like more influential or was a catalyst for the current landscape of American culture, particularly American TV. So I'm going to spin you this little tale, see if you can follow with me and uh, maybe poke some holes in my theory. So after this movie was released, the TV writer Bill Lawrence co-created a show where they basically said, okay, we want what Michael J. Fox is doing in this movie, but we want to turn that into a show. And so they hired Michael J. Fox as the, the lead for the sitcom Spin City, which I remember watching with my parents a few times. Very charming show. Michael J. Fox actually ends up getting written out by being hired to be the speechwriter for the president in Washington, D.C. So it's kind of... <laughs> 
I don't know enough about the show, but it's almost interesting to read that as a prequel to this. And guess who replaced Michael J. Fox on Spin City? Who? It was none other than Charlie Sheen. Really? So there's a recurring theme of... The Sheens. Getting ousted for a Sheen, yeah. (laughs) So Spin City was enough of a hit that Bill Lawrence was hired to be a show writer for a project of his own conception, a medical sitcom centering around uh, some some new doctors called Scrubs. That came out uh, right around, I think it was 2001. And Scrubs was not the hugest hit in ratings or awards, but is, in my opinion, one of the more influential shows of the early 2000s. And I think it's starting to really get recognized as such. It did a lot of things that comedy would really build on in the subsequent years. It, it took a single camera comedy and put in a ton of rapid fire jokes. It was like just a punchline machine, but then also added in all these flights of fancies and cutaways. And, and on top of all of that was also a very fertile ground for just really emotional storytelling. Lots of darkness and confronting of death and confronting demons and things that pulled on the, the heartstrings. And the fact that it was able to kind of do all of these things was definitely a real creative hit at the time, even if it didn't pull in the accolades. Um, have you seen Scrubs, Brian? I've only seen a couple episodes of Scrubs. I think some of the things that it did paved, away, paved the way for some of the big comedy touchstones of the next decade. Things like Arrested Development had the same really fast-paced joke a second timeline to it. Uh, 30 Rock certainly had some similar tone things with the the flights of fancy. Um, How I Met Your Mother had a voiceover and, and could also kind of alternate between silly and emotional. And then I think you also saw trickles of it in the, the big NBC creative hits of the mid-late 2000s, like the Office, Parks and Rec, Community, and all of that kind of led to the next evolution of TV comedy. You got auteurs like Louis C.K. making shows like Louie. You have plenty of other shows that leaned into this fact of single camera comedy becoming a blend of funny and telling these in- intense stories. Master of None. Fleabag, which is an absolutely fantastic short series. And now, if you ever look at the Golden Globes, it's all of these dramedies. It's never, it's rarely straight comedies, rarely straight sitcoms. And if it is a straight sitcom like Shit's Creek right now, it's kind of big news if it's, it's a surprise if that's a show that's winning awards because the, the go-to in comedy now in the streaming age are these kind of hybrid drama comedies that, as I just tried to outline, Perhaps uh, the American president was the first domino to, to fall down into, into that. Yeah, it's interesting to follow the threads of how things develop. Nobody comes from nowhere. I'm not arguing that the American president was like a direct influence on all that stuff, but I stand by the thought that it's perhaps a catalyst for it. And maybe even beyond the West Wing, that's kind of its biggest legacy because, the, again, the West Wing was more of an end of an era great network sitcoms before the streaming age. Yeah, you've definitely seen a growing influence of auteur personalities driving television series. 
So I'm going to hop into actually kind of walking through the movie and we can revisit some of these moments, some of these characters. What do you think? Let's do it. So the American president opens with a quick camera flying through the West Wing following the president meeting his staff after he made a a sort of reserved speech. He declined to make some gun control references that his speechwriter had added for him. But he also gets a report that he has 63%. They keep repeating this. It's like a really strong approval rating. And it's definitely pointing him towards re-election. There's a lot of talk of approval ratings in this movie. And during this, we really get to see just how much of a well-oiled machine the president's team is. Everyone from the assistants to the chief of staff knows exactly their role and is very articulate and rarely makes mistakes it's it's we just kind of get to get into the president's world there uh we also learn that some environmental lobbyists are pushing for a very aggressive climate bill a 20 percent emission reduction in carbon output and it's this big signature environmental law but the president's advisors are telling him not to push for this bill because it's unlikely to pass in that aggressive form so they talk about how they're, they'll do a watered-down version of it, 10% instead of 20%. But really the focus is this crime bill. They are doing kind of a light crime bill. They wanted to add gun control as a major focus of this crime bill, but they also don't want to alienate, despite the fact that it was one of the things that he campaigned on. So they're kind of focusing on getting this, this lighter crime bill passed is kind of like the key to his re-election. If he can get this passed, then his, it'll be good enough for his approval rating that he's certain he can be re-elected. I think it's worth noting that they don't actually say what is in the crime bill. They just keep saying that the gun control is not in the crime bill. Yeah, there's a little bit of talk about assault weapons and like how much those are included, but I agree, it's definitely a little bit vague. Meanwhile... The, the French president is coming to visit the White House, and they're going to hold a state dinner to celebrate the, the French president's arrival. And the president, who we learn is a widower, his wife died of cancer, was planning to bring his cousin as a plus one. But then they get a phone call that she has the flu and she can't come, so the president's going to have to go stag. The next day, though, the environmental lobby is at the White House. They're making this pitch. No, I don't do the light 10% one. you got to do the 20% one. And they've hired this political operative named Sidney Ellen Wade. It's kind of interesting how exactly we're introduced to her, like what her background is. They call her a closer, but she also seems like a little bit naive about being around the White House. Uh, I was trying to figure that out, like exactly what it is. But it's clear that she's like a get stuff done, no nonsense political operative. Yeah, it was interesting to me that there's like a couple times where she talks about like being confused about driving around D.C. And it's like, is this your first time here? I thought you were like a bigwig of the lobbying scene, but maybe in other parts of the country, I don't know. So the president overhears this meeting, and right as Sidney Wade is making this very snide remark about him, it's kind of funny. It, it didn't hit very hard in, in the Trump era. Like it, it was kind of almost a softball to him, you know? It's at least what it felt like. But at the moment, it was like this moment of, being aghast that the president would hear you use such impropriety towards him. When this happens, he kind of pulls her aside for a one-on-one and makes a deal with her that if she can get 
a certain amount of votes, then the president will support the more uh, intense version of the environmental bill, the, the 20%. So at this point, we've kind of set up what the, the main competing objectives are here. The president really wants to pass his crime bill, whereas Sidney really wants to pass this environmental bill. Later that day, he's kind of reflecting on his conversation with Sydney, and he decides to give her a call and basically ask her out on a date, see if she will be his plus one to the state dinner. So there's this whole humorous exchange where he calls her at her sister's house, and she doesn't believe it's him, and she makes more kind of snide remarks about him. Well, they're kind of complimentary, like, oh, I didn't know you had such a great ass, President, or, or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of humor derived in this movie from just kind of how larger than life being the president is and the novelty of having to interact with a normal person. I mean, that's kind of the premise of the whole movie. That's what sells the whole thing. Yeah, that's definitely a main theme in the the relationship uh, between Sidney and the president, but plenty of other interactions too. Like He keeps trying to get flowers for her and the the florist doesn't really believe that it's him. So they have the French president arrive and Sydney comes and she's meets the president and they have this really lovely dinner with the French president with some jokes about what the French do and and Sydney has this moment where she can speak French and she kind of acts as like a little interpreter and they have this uh, dance, first dance with the president and Sydney and it's the front page of the New York Times the next day. The moment with the French president was kind of strange to me. While Sydney kind of shows her bona fides by speaking French to the president and his wife, and everybody's captivated by her. But also, I just thought it was really strange that it wasn't apparent that there was an actual interpreter sitting there. Like, would they actually just sit the French president there next to the American president and <laughs> not have somebody to be translating between them? It, it doesn't make sense. And also, the French president speaks English a couple lines later. So, I don't know. That's true. So, Sydney is a hit at the state dinner, really hits it off with the president, and he decides to send her some flowers in the morning, but in this kind of humorous misunderstanding, can't get flowers sent, and instead sends her a Virginia ham, because Virginia is her home state. I found it interesting that the president does not have very much knowledge of Virginia things. It seems like new information to him, for instance, that the state tree and flower of Virginia is the dogwood. And D.C. is basically part of Virginia. I know it's separate, but it's right there. I, I guess we're biased because we are Virginia natives, but, I mean, the CIA is centered in Virginia. A lot of government agencies are in Virginia. Pentagon is in Virginia. Yeah, I completely agree. So this read to me as someone who doesn't actually spend a lot of time in D.C. because half the people who work in D.C. are commuting from the Virginia suburbs. And like you said, many iconic institutions are in fact in Virginia. And the whole, oh, I'm this girl from Virginia thing, just nobody would ever say that or think that that's unusual. That's right. I will say I was proud when the president said, what's the state flower of Virginia? And I was like, it's the dogwood. I knew off the top of my head. That's the, the product of the fourth grade Virginia education. Yeah, that was one of my favorite units when, when I was in elementary school. I learned about the cardinal. It's a state bird. 
Six Semper Tyrannus. We have the best state flag. It depicts an actual murder of a tyrant. I don't think too many flags are quite so direct about uh, how much we will fight against our oppressors. Yeah, I've heard some graphic designers criticize the Virginia flag for being too busy, but you're right. I don't think you can really argue with a state flag that has a tyrant being trampled. Yeah, I don't care about the graphic design principles. I'm in on our flag. Six Semper Tyrannus. One thing about Virginia ham, though. I will say when I went to college in Williamsburg, a fact I learned that I had not previously known was that Smithfield is a real place, and it's in Virginia, and it's where the Smithfield honey-baked hams come from. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that either. But if you ever look up what is the iconic food of each state, you'll often see ham as the iconic Virginia food. So the next day, the the staff is trying to warn him about the optics of having Sydney hanging around, what their relationship might mean if it does, in fact, become a relationship. And at one point, one of my favorite lines of the film, at one point, uh, one of the advisors said, how do you want me to handle the Sydney issue? And the president quips, I certainly hope the Sydney issue refers to a problem we're having with Australia. I can't help but think that that was the entire reason that Sorkin named this character Sydney was so he could write that line, but I, I really enjoyed that moment. She's also worried about the optics because she's a, a lobbyist, and that's kind of her identity. She's the pit bull in the political realm. Uh, but she does agree to go to a second date, which is then cut short in the quote-unquote dish room, the, the China room, when the president gets his save the cat moment. He learns that the Libyans have bombed this base that's been mentioned a few times previously. And they talk about how to do a proportional strike. And he goes on this nice little rant about, well, the janitors working at this base that we're going to bomb really consider it proportional. And that scene is reused pretty much word for word in an early West Wing episode. Basically the, the idea that some minor country can attack American interests and then what do you do in response? It's like, do you bring nuclear weapons to bear? Do you go to war? Probably not with some little country, but then what do you do? It's, it's a pretty interesting thread, but it's kind of a throwaway here. It's basically not mentioned after this that I can recall. Meanwhile, we start to learn about this other character, Senator Rumson. He's a conservative senator, and he's going to run for president uh, against Shepard by attacking President Shepard's character, especially regarding this relationship that he's starting to develop with a lobbyist. And there's this uh, good exchange between the president and Sydney, where she notes that Bob Rumson's got to be drooling all over this. In this case, this is their relationship. And the president quips, when most couples first get together, they're inclined to slam on the brakes because they're concerned about Bob Rumson's drool. Uh, there's just so many little lines like that that are so clever. I also thought it was funny that Rumson chose as his presidential slogan, the pride is back, which on the one hand is sort of a make America great again kind of quick one-liner, but I don't think any conservative would actually ever use anything that had pride in the title these days. Yeah, not recently. Yeah, with the gay rights movement, LBGTQ. But the president and Sydney kind of confront the thorniness of this and their feelings for each other and kind of how this would be a complicated relationship, and they end up spending the night together. It's kind of uh, clear they're going to proceed with it at this point which makes trouble for the president who insists the White House not address it publicly 
just make no comment. The president's life is not the business of the people that really they should care about governing, not who he's taken to the bistro. But when the poll numbers start to come in, that beloved 63% starts to fall, as does support for the crime bill, which again is the president's central focus here. And so it starts to look like his this relationship with Sidney is going to hurt his chance passing that bill and, and hurt his bid for re-election as Rumson continues to climb. One thing we haven't talked about is that Rumson does some opposition research and he comes up with a picture of Sidney present at a flag burning 15 years in the past. And it's not really said whether this was like in college or, or I mean, presumably she was a little older. So I don't really know the the situation behind this, but he's got this picture of her front and center during a flag burning. And that's another thing that they say, we're not going to dignify this with a comment, even though some of the staff is like, well, maybe we should talk about this. It's painful to even talk about it because of how it parallels now. Oh, this far left radical is infiltrating this supposedly centrist Democrat, which in case it's not obvious, is exactly the narrative that conservatives are using now for the supposedly centrist Democrat running for president. Yeah, that that part really (laughs) hit close to home, given the current political landscape. But despite all of that, um, the president and Sidney, their relationship continues to progress. They get to have a night away at Camp David. Uh, They make fun of the news coverage of him while they're there. She says that she loves him. And then shortly thereafter, at a Christmas social event, Sydney makes an aside. She's very close to getting her environmental bill passed or getting the support that she said she would before the president would support it. And she makes an aside that some of the congressmen said that they actually would support the crime bill ahead of supporting the environmental bill. This puts the president and his staff in a huge dilemma because they're close to getting the crime bill passed, but to basically use that knowledge and break his word with Sydney that he would support the, the environmental bill is all based on information that she kind of casually lets slip. It's really one of the few times that they let the barrier between president and lobbyist actually kind of break in this film. So he's really, the president is really hesitant about using this tactic, but eventually the staff convinces him to, and they decide to basically leverage this information that they got from Sydney to get the crime bill passed and pump the brakes on the environmental bill. During this this scene where they're trying to convince the president to do this and some of the scenes around it, Michael J. Fox, he has one scene where he's on the phone with a congressman and he gets this just really great rant where the congressman says that he's not going to support the crime bill and Michael J. Fox calls him a chicken shit lame ass, which is just a good good line. Yes, dialogue that you don't quite get in the West Wing. (laughs) Those network TV codes, yeah. That's right. But I think my favorite Michael J. Fox moment around here is when, again, they're trying to convince the president to, to get this crime bill passed, is, and they're kind of criticizing him for basically trying too hard to let his relationship with Sidney not impact his governing. Michael J. Fox says, In this country, it's not only permissible to question our leaders, it's our responsibility. And I got a major freedom boner. And I was listening to that. It's like the United States, man. Like now if you were to talk to leaders, I'm going to step back on the soapbox for a minute. The thing that pisses me off about the current White House is that, you know, they can have bad policies. Everybody, There's been bad policies for all of time, but they get so angry. It's like anyone who isn't 
who's questioning them at all immediately becomes the enemy. Oh, Mitt Romney says that the president probably shouldn't be saying that. Well, Mitt Romney's just a Republican in name only. He's not a real conservative because real conservatives wouldn't question the dumbass president. Anyways, back off the soapbox now. Obviously, Sydney's not happy about the decision the president's made to stop the environmental bill. She breaks up with him. She gets fired. And everyone's feeling kind of lousy about it, despite the fact that they got that crime bill they wanted passed. He, he gets a little blow up with A.J. Martin Sheen. They have a great back and forth. They're playing pool. And this is the, where the president asks A.J. why he is, hasn't run for any political office, which, of course, he would play the president a few years later. Exactly. Yeah, they're old personal friends, and they've got this long-running relationship, and they kind of just have this dramatic exchange together where Martin Sheen kind of prods him in the right direction. So the next morning, which I think is the morning of the State of the Union, they're doing their press conference, and the president takes the podium, unexpected, and he proceeds to give just a truly great monologue about how Living in a country like America isn't easy. There's a cost to progress. There's dark countercurrents that that fight against it. And this is like a very Sorkin theme that he's repeatedly used about the progress and the things that push push against it. It's it's like a, a classic. It's almost like a stage monologue, really. That was my second freedom boner of the film. Some good lines from that where he says, "You want a character debate, Bob?" You better stick with me because Sidney Ellen Wade is out of your league. Apparently, Ted Cruz co-opted that line in recent years when Trump said something about his wife or something. That The Wikipedia article pointed that out. This is a time for serious people, Bob, and your 15 minutes are up. Which is kind of a funny thing to say to like a long-standing senator. Your 15 minutes are up. I don't think tenured senators are really considered to be having 15 minutes of fame. And he makes a swipe at Rumson's presidential slogan, which is, I'm Bob Rumson and I'm running for president. And he counters it with, my name is Andrew Shepard and I am the president. It's a good zinger. And then the movie wraps up. Sydney returns. Of course, they reconcile. It is a romantic comedy after all. Turns out they are going to live happily ever after in this idealized United States. Uh, because, of course, the big announcement that he made is that not only is he going to reintroduce the environmental bill at the full 20%, but he's also going to reintroduce the crime bill with the gun control language added back. So he's not pulling his punches. He's, he's going all in with both bills. He believes in America that has ideals that can make true progress, and, and that's what he's going to fight for as president because he says, I was so busy keeping my job, that is, being concerned about re-election numbers, I forgot to do my job. Well, and then, of course, we don't know whether either of those modified bills pass. It's kind of left up in the air. And the movie ends just as he's about to walk on stage for the, the State of the Union. And I was trying to decide if, if that was a recreation or if there was like some sort of CGI to make it actually feel like the State of the Union. But it was yet again a very nice bit of production to have it actually feel like... The Capitol? The Capitol, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did a really incredible job in this film of recreating all the different locations, all the rooms in the White House, the Oval Office, the Situation Room. I don't know if it's in the Senate chamber or the House chamber that the State of the Union happens, but yes, the Capitol building, 
there's a scene at a Bob Rumson rally where it's filled wall to wall with people at all these tables in this big meeting hall that I was impressed by just how many people they got together for it. Clearly they did their work as far as production design is concerned to make it really compelling and convincing that these are the places these events really take place. Definitely agree. So let's talk about some of the things that we liked. What were the good things in this movie? Well, I've already mentioned Sorkin and his script a lot. I really think that that is the highlight of this film. It's just, it's a fast, dense, funny, smart script. But it's also like kind of thoughtful about some of the complexities about politics and kind of how it works. They, they have this great line. I think it's Sidney's boss. He says, politics is perception. And that's kind of the running theme, although I, I guess you could say politics is perception and Virginia Ham's, apparently, because they get a Virginia Ham delivered at the end of that scene. That's right. There's some whining and dining involved. I will say, having watched several Aaron Sorkin projects at this point, I would be interested to see the bloopers, the outtake reels, because there's a lot of long takes of people delivering this very dense dialogue, and I'm sure there's got to be hours of footage of people tripping over some of these lines. It would be pretty funny to see like someone talking about democracy and then stumbling over their words. I can just see Rob Lowe doing that. I've seen some outtakes of him uh, forgetting his lines on Parks and Rec, and he gets really angry. <laughs> exactly. Despite it being a political drama with lots of minutiae about manipulative politicians preying on Americans' fears and picking on the president's personal life. The general arc is actually very wholesome. The relationship between Sydney and the president is, it's very clearly on the up and up. It's very clearly not like her trying to manipulate him or him trying to do anything sort of seedy. It, it's just uh, the, the whole depiction of the president and the relationship, it's, it, it's wholesome, as I said. I do wonder if... The, I don't know who would write it. Maybe it could be Aaron Sorkin could write a version of this, or if it would be another writer. There's got to be a version of this film that's very similar, except Sidney is, in fact, trying to manipulate the president to support the environmental bill. Yeah, I mean, she could easily just be trading sex for the influence. And then seeing how the relationship blows up. I also think the cast is really awesome. There's just a lot of really good actors. They all do a really good job, fit their role really well. A bunch of people get scene-stealing moments. Michael J. Fox is a delight every time he's talking. I thought I really enjoyed his character, and I could see how you would be convinced enough that you would try to make a whole show around that. Yeah, I enjoyed his performance quite a bit, too. And I also thought uh, Martin Sheen, he's just an amazing actor. He's got this great presence and intensity, but it's not like overly energetic. I can see why you would watch this and think he would make a good president character as well. Yeah, I mean, in the way that, like, being a vice president or a secretary of state or something is like a dry run to be the actual president. That's what Sheen's performance felt like here, that he was almost auditioning to take the lead role. I also thought that Benning, who played Sydney, Annette Benning, she was really good. She's just a good actress in general, but she got to kind of play a variety of emotions and situations in this, and she was kind of believable as really charming, maybe a little bit less believable as cutthroat, as this political operative, but she had good chemistry with Douglas, uh, who, who was also very good. Half the challenge of any romantic comedy, and underneath the political drama, this is actually a romantic comedy, 
is the chemistry between those leads. And, and I definitely thought it was above average. I mean, it wasn't like all time great, but it was, it was definitely good. Another thing that I really enjoyed about this movie, it reminded me of when I was younger and it felt like whoever was president, it was like a great and impressive and heroic person. I miss having the president be someone that the country looks up to. And this movie definitely captures that feeling. Everybody's so impressed by the president. He's so articulate. He's so thoughtful. But he's also very smart and very, he stands up for his ideals in the end. And he's a good dad. And he's just, he's just this hero, you know? True. And I think now that perception has changed for, for many. I would agree. I also, we, we already talked about this, but I want to call out how much of the White House they reproduced and how detailed it is. They ended up using the set they built for this for different movies in the future. I was like halfway through the movie when I realized, wait, this, are we actually in the White House? Because they have, it, it really feels like it. I thought so too. Like, did they actually give them access? It looks and feels real. And I think they did reuse some of these sets for the West Wing as well. The last thing I wanted to call out is the score by a composer I was not familiar with. I think Mark Shaman is his name. The score is really good, particularly the opening theme as the credits are playing. I, I really like that. It was like catchy, but also patriotic and, and made me enthusiastic. It, it felt like, like a long lost patriotic song that you could hum. Yeah, so that's something we haven't talked about yet, but at the very beginning of the movie, we get this cool opening where it's this brassy fanfare music over like half-opaque Ken Burnsy shots over art of the various presidents. The show, The West Wing, had a similar, a little bit more ambitious opening sequence with very similar score, kind of soaring, brassy music. Like da da da, ba ba ba, kind of um, who, who did the Abraham Lincoln music? Um, Aaron Copeland. It reminded me of Aaron Copeland, very Americana fanfare style, or um, fanfare for the common man. In the West Wing, it also cuts in shots of the various cast members during this opening sequence, and I will say that in. 2016 election season i did a episode of my public access series that kind of aped that west wing opening so i am familiar with that sequence and have a lot of appreciation for it the theme was actually i learned uh repurposed for several trailers because of the way it just evokes this dramatic patriotic feeling like it was used in the saving private ryan trailer and and a couple others it's just this nice little little nugget so yeah i definitely like the score and that that opening scene so that was the end of my list of the main things i wanted to call out that i thought were particularly good in this film did you have anything you wanted to add i think you covered it pretty well i've been commenting on some things as we've gone along and seems like we're broadly in agreement this is a good movie we'll we'll make our official scores soon but overall i enjoyed this one but now maybe is the time that we nitpick a little bit Agreed, yeah. There, there were some not-so-good things. Not too many, but there were a few. I would say the, the overarching big not-so-good thing is that a couple of the plots, particularly this whole vote-counting back and forth and promises made to A and B and breaking that and, oh, but these congressmen said that and not that, it's just not as gripping as 
the tension of the president of the United States and his romantic relationship with the lobbyist and his battle against this huckster conservative senator. Just for me, it was not quite as strong as the rest of the film. Right. But I think it's worth noting that this is probably what it's really like to work as the president or any number of political figures that there is a whole lot of this disenchanting drama of vote hunting and that they probably really do have checklists of who among the various congressmen and senators will vote which way and that often only there's a handful of people whose votes are up for grabs. You know, it, it really does seem to reflect reality. I mean, if you're following the news, it does always seem like you hear the same names of like three senators over and over again, like Lisa Murkowski or maybe Mitt Romney, who could vote one way or the other, depending on how they're feeling. But everybody else is like locked in and they just know going into a certain issue. Oh, yeah, this senator is probably going to do this. And that just rubs me the wrong way. I know that they have constituents that they're representing and, and maybe the constituents or the party feel a set way about a set thing. But part of me likes to believe that a vote isn't decided until the moment the metaphorical lever is pulled. To me, that's where the drama is, and I guess that's a fantasy, because maybe people are set in their ways. This is a feeling I have when the Olympics happen, too. That whenever there's commentary on the Olympics, there's people like, Oh, this guy from Iceland has been training hard. He's probably going to finish first. And, you know, based on all the qualifiers... This person has been coming in second, so they'll probably get the silver. It's like, geez, you know, if this has already all been figured out already, why are we even watching it? I like to believe that there's at least a chance it could go either way. And this drama, quote-unquote drama, of grubbing for the individual votes kind of undoes that illusion. Well said. It's, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying about this toxic bipartisan caucusing political culture that's again leaving me very jaded well you said it better than i could but it's not wrangling over concepts and ideals it's wrangling over trading this vote for that for one or two or three important congress people although that said i quite enjoyed spielberg's lincoln movie from 2012 and that's got a lot of the same thing where they're haggling over individual congressmen's votes Although in that case, I kind of liked it because just thinking about how all of those congressmen were real people in the old-timey Lincoln days and that maybe nobody has played them in a movie before and like wondering what their ghosts would think about that, that they're finally now in a movie. Do you think some of the people who are congresspeople today are going to be played in movies 100 years in the future? It's interesting to think about. I would say maybe some of them. <laughs> I think it was Oliver Stone made, it might have even been during Bush's presidency or maybe shortly after it ended, made a movie called W, depicting in a sort of satirical way the Bush presidency and how it felt weird that they were like trying to, to make recreations of all these politicians like who are still contemporary politicians at the time. Right. Well, they've already made, I guess it was a little later, but they've already made the Dick Cheney movie. I will say 100% there's going to be Trump movies. They're going to need to maybe jump through some loopholes with his litigious estate, but... 
It might even be movies just about the past week. Like, you could take any seven days during the Trump presidency, but especially the last year, and I think there would be enough content for a movie there. Yeah, it just seems like everything speeds up, and I'm sure that's due in part to the 24-hour news machine, but there's a new story every day. Another thing that I wouldn't say was really bad so much as it was just kind of unremarkable is the, the direction is fine. It's it's competent, but it's not it never wows you. And I guess I guess that's intentional because it, it focuses on the script and these long shots of the cast just kind of sitting there going back and forth, talking, walking a lot. I never really noticed anything interesting that the camera was doing other than that final zoom out shot of the Capitol building for the State of the Union. It's not as if Sorkin scripts have never been directed in interesting ways. The Social Network had that David Fincher look, and I know that you, I recall from our previous conversations, you're not the biggest fan of that one, but Steve Jobs is another Sorkin script, I believe, and that one is directed by Danny Boyle, and that one is like very visually distinct, but this one, it's not very uh, technically interesting, I would say. Yeah, I guess I would concur. We'll have to dig into the social network at some point. It probably gets an episode someday down the line. We just keep coming back to it, so exactly. I feel like we got to address it. Yeah. A couple of nitpicks. I just thought the daughter character wasn't very good. Sorkin is not known for writing women, especially young women, very well. I think Sydney's character is fine, but, in ge- but she's really the only interesting woman, female character here. And the daughter in particular does not talk... How I would imagine a 12-year-old to talk. Yeah, I I would agree. She's just there to basically show that he's a family man, add an extra element to his charm. And I also thought that the Libya plot, which I already mentioned, is kind of a throwaway. Like, it's, it's an interesting premise, but it just gets basically one interesting scene here. That was something I noticed a little in the later West Wing as well. And there they would have like story arcs that pay off over the course of a season, but then they wouldn't necessarily carry over into subsequent seasons, even though it seemed like in real life they would. Like there's a plot line where there's like this extremist group that is trying to assassinate an African-American man who's close to the president. Like, that pays off over the course of a whole season, but then after that it's not really addressed. And there's other things like that. Things, goals that the president is working toward that are maybe not 100% concluded by the end of a given season and they don't always carry forward. I think it's even amplified in movies like this when Sorkin's tendency is to have like six plots going on at once that in a 100-minute movie you can't really get six plots fully fleshed out. Right, and to expound on that, this is kind of a minor point, but this movie has a lot of election talk for what turns out to be a non-election year. I guess it's the third year of Shepard's term and not the fourth. Rumson, who's sort of our villain, he is an antagonist for sure, but he's not really cartoonish. But he is continually harping on the fact that he's running for president. And they're talking about approval percentages and and all these things and getting specific votes and with this rivalry with Rumson it kind of seems like they're getting ready for the election but let me cut in to say that this is a good movie for the fall so good pick for this time of year Dan 
but we are heading into November in the story, the first part of the story, and I was expecting that an election was going to happen. And then Christmas happens, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. I guess we're still a whole year away from the election. And the movie ended with the State of the Union, and it left me wondering, how do things pan out? Does Rumson have the Republican nomination at this point, or is he still working through primaries, or what is the case? And how does it all pan out in the end? That's interesting. I didn't really think too much about the time frame, but it is a lot of election talk for, as you point out, more than a year or about a year in advance of the actual election. I like to think, based off of that speech that he gave, that Shepard would win it, that re-election. I think it's probably a safe bet. I mean, in my lifetime, an incumbent has never lost re-election, so we'll have to see what happens in this year of our Lord 2020. A whole time capsule for anyone listening in the future. The last thing I want to say is something that's maybe a not-so-good thing about this movie is not really the movie itself. It's just clear that this movie now lives in the shadow of the West Wing, the way that the West Wing took the concepts, the structure of the cast, the premise, the tone, and built a whole great six-season drama out of it. And it just can't help but make this movie feel a little diminished in its stature. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it has been overshadowed. There's a lot of people who talk about the West Wing being this great milestone and not quite as many who talk about the American president. But I was aware of the movie, and I think any movie that can give birth to a great series has something going for it. It definitely stands on its own well. You don't need to watch the West Wing before or after this. You can just watch this movie and admire a good movie. That's right. And it's a little more of an open and shut story as a feature film ought to be. I mean, the West Wing is not a romantic comedy. This is. And so that gives us, you know, kind of a standard stock narrative arc to follow. Was there anything else that you wanted to comment on as a something that bothered you, a not-so-good thing? Not really. This overall didn't grate on me too much. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I watched it. It's been on my list for a little while. It makes me think I really need to add to my list of movies I haven't seen yet but have been meaning to, because all my picks so far have been things I have seen previously and just want to share. But um, this one, just like our premiere episode that focused on Suspiria, has allowed me to check one off of that list. So that brings us to our signature segment, Is It Good?, where we have an eight-point scale of goodness from very not good all the way up through Tour de Good. I'm going to take a little sidebar here. Tour de Good, I kind of assumed that it was obvious that that was a play on Tour de Force. I assume that was obvious to you, Brian? More or less, or Tour de France. Yes. I. So this scale, I've had mixed feelings about this scale. I think we need some way to represent it visually so that people understand. I've been accompanying my rankings with a number value. I, I don't really know. We can think about it. I, I'm definitely open to uh, finding some way to refine his presentation, for sure. Although I do like the column on your grid document of comparing our rankings. We may have to do something with that information about eventually. Agreed. So, 
uh, is it good? And normally we let the guest go first. So as I recommended this movie and, and am the host this time, what did you think? Is it good? I think for me, this solidly gets a very good six out of eight. It delivered on a lot of elements. Cast is very strong. Production values are high. Score is memorable. And I think I would recommend it to people who haven't seen it yet. How are you feeling? Well, I'm right there with you. I am at a very good on this. I really enjoyed it. Didn't have too many complaints, mostly nitpicks. Very strong cast. The script's the real star, really sucks you in. Just, it's ear candy listening to this great cast deliver the, these great lines. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Very good. That's That's my pick. Another one we matched on. That's three movies in a row. Two movies from our last episode and today as well. Oh, sure enough. Yes, so we've had five episodes now, but six movies. Maybe we should uh, we should do the social network so that we have one we know we're going to disagree on. <laughs> yeah, eventually we'll start sniping at each other with our picks. So before we wrap up, I wanted to open the floor to any parting thoughts unrelated to this film. Well, I actually had something to talk about related to this film, tangentially. Really? Let's go for it. I was wondering, have you ever been to the White House before? I have not been to the White House. So I have some White House stories, what I at least think are interesting White House stories, if you'll permit me to share for a, a minute or two. Absolutely. So the first time I went to the White House, I took the normal tour. And if you've never been... I guess I don't want to color your opinions before you even go, but I think the run-of-the-mill standard-issue White House tour is lame. Just a total nothing. Because they show you around, like, the red room and the blue room, and it's just rooms that have old tables and chairs, and, like, maybe you see the dish room from this film, where there's, like, plates that belong to Dolly Madison, and... I don't know about you, but when I went to see a tour of the White House, the things I expect to see are like the Oval Office is the big one, or the Lincoln Bedroom. It's like, where does the president actually do stuff? I don't want to see a sitting room where like an assistant to the French president waits. I want to see where the president is signing stuff. And I got none of that this first go round. Then, a couple years later, like my brother's Cub Scout troop or something was going to do a tour. And I tagged along because my dad said that somebody the troop knew was the dog walker for the Obamas. And when we went, he was going to bring Bo Obama the dog to come see us. And we were there at the White House, and the message comes through, Oh yeah, Bo's not available right now. So the one reason that I went back again, nothing. No, we did not meet Bo Obama. And so I was pretty embittered, pretty disillusioned with the presidential mansion long before 2016. But then, a couple years ago in 2018, I found out that I have a friend who was a fellow TJ alum in my year. Uh, went to Thomas Jefferson High School like like Dan and I did. And 
it turns out that she's actually a big figure in the intelligence community. I don't actually know what her specific title is, but she's like a super spy. And so as kind of a flex during our 10-year high school reunion in 2018, she reached out to a couple of us. I mean, we were already friends, um, but she reached out to a couple of us asking, would we like to tour the West Wing? And so two years ago, I actually did go on a tour with her where we sat in the Situation Room around that long table that they show in the movie. And we stood in the little room that you see if you read the Wikipedia article about the murder of bin Laden. Like the, the little tiny room where Obama and Clinton are hunkered around a little tiny table watching the live feed of the SEALs taking out bin Laden. And we did go into the Oval Office, so I have now been there. And that was really, really cool. And I just wanted to, I don't know, make myself seem cool. But it was memorable and good to see those places again in a movie. I'm so jealous. That's so awesome. I was at that reunion, too. There was at least the, the bar portion of it. Did When did this happen? Was this before or after the actual bar? I, th I think it was like the day before the the bar part yes the, the alcohol portion that's right the the quintessential reunion requirement ah that's so cool i'm jealous did it look like it did in this movie it did they all the things looked very real that's pretty awesome excellent parting thought was there anything else you wanted to add check out this movie if you haven't seen it i think it's got both of our endorsements it's kind of a time capsule at this point 1995 is longer ago than I care to think about. That's true. It's it's almost become a, a period piece at this point. Well, I guess that means like depicting the past, but it, it, it definitely is depicting its era in a way that is very different. There was some stuff where I was thinking, like when they throw the newspaper down on the table, it's such a good moment. It's so cinematic and so visceral when you throw down a newspaper with a headline, but that wouldn't happen today. Today it would be tweets. It would be a a headline that pops up on your, your phone app. Nobody's on phones. Send them a link in the group chat, the White House Discord or Slack. And it's far less impressive that they can immediately get phone numbers to places. Like that's kind of a big thing that's played up here. They, Give me the phone number to blank. And then an instant later it's there. But now I just ask Google and I have it. It's, you know, it's not, I don't need to be president to get the phone number to a local florist just like that. That's right. My uh, parting thought is I've been rewatching I think I even mentioned it in a previous episode because we there was one that had Laura Dern in it. I've been rewatching Enchanted, not Enchanted. Oh, Enchanted is a very different thing. I've been rewatching Enlightened, which is a HBO series that Laura Dern starred in, and it is really good, and it is also extremely uncomfortable to watch. It's about uh, Laura Dern playing this woman who has a meltdown at work, comes back. The company clearly does not want her to come back, but she is super insistent that she's going to try to reclaim her career. But it's not really in this heroic way. It's in like a lack of social competence way where she like is not good at getting the hint that she probably should just move on. And she is absolutely fantastic in it. And the writing is, is very good. So... If you're looking for uh, Laura Dern in a starring vehicle that will make you feel uncomfortable, but is very good, I recommend Enlightened. 
I also, by the way, recommend Enchanted, the uh, comedy where Amy Adams plays a Disney princess in real life. Yes, we might have to revisit Enchanted at some point, or for me, visit Enlightened for the first time. Because I, I know you wrote a blog post about that one at some point and how good it was. I did, yes, I, I did. I, uh, it, it was, it's a very good show. I recommend it. It's not for everyone. Would not be surprised if you watched it and did not like it at all, but uh, it, it was good for me. So, Brian, you will be hosting next episode. What do you have on the docket for us? So, this week's entry was a fitting selection for fall, and I hope mine for next week will be as well, because I'm going to deviate from our formula a little bit this time around. I'm going to recommend a television miniseries rather than a single feature film. This is Over the Garden Wall, which was a recent kind of auteur miniseries thing produced in the fall for Cartoon Network a few years ago. It draws influence from older American art styles and kind of the cartoons of the 30s like Betty Boop and, and the early Popeyes. And I found it pretty captivating. And it certainly is about this time of the year. Cool. It's animated, is that right? Yes. It's a short cartoon. I think there's 10 10-minute episodes. And so, total of 100 minutes. It's about on par with a feature film. That's right. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. I'd like to see this. I don't know really anything about it. I've heard it by name, but I'm excited to give it a try. I am ready to talk about it, so... Should should make for a good episode. Hopefully enjoyed our show this time around. I liked talking about this movie with you, Dan. Yep, I had a great time as well. Thanks for joining, Brian. Listeners, thank you for joining us too. You can listen to us on, as I mentioned, Spotify and Apple Podcasts now. So seek us out and subscribe. And uh, maybe we'll have an email address at some point so you can send us a note if you have any feedback for sure, us. Sure, questions. I don't think we have one yet. Questions, comments, movies you'd want us to check out? Well, Brian, I'm looking forward to talking with you next week. Have a good one. Sounds good, Dan. Join us all next time, guys. This has been The Goods.